Turn with me to Hebrews 11. We'll begin reading in verse 24. We're going to continue our series in Hebrews 11. As we said at the beginning of this series, Hebrews 11 is really a chapter basically laying out for you the kind of enduring faith that's talked about at the end of chapter 10. At the end of chapter 10, we're called to endure in faith, to persevere in our faith. And then in chapter 11, we're given a list of examples of Old Testament saints who did endure in faith. And then in chapter 12, it's sort of summed up. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us. And ultimately, the answer is let us look to Christ to persevere in the faith. But we're walking through each of these Old Testament figures so we could see the way in which they endured in faith as an encouragement to us. So look at with me at Hebrews 11 and verse 24. We'll just be reading verse 24 through 26, looking at some of the ministry of Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would bless this, your word, the word given by the head of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ, superintended by the Holy Spirit for the sake of your people in every age. May we hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Cause us to have the same faith that we see in Moses, one who looked to Christ and who bore the fruit of self-denial for the sake of Christ and his people, looking forward to the reward. May you cause the same in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, self-denial is a central call of the Christian faith. Jesus said in Luke 9.23, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Let him deny himself. Yet I think we struggle with self-denial for at least two reasons or on two grounds. One reason I think we tend to struggle with self-denial is that we're in love with this present world. We're in love with this present world, and we really can't see beyond this present world. Keep your hand in Hebrews 11 and look over at Matthew 13. In the parables of the mysteries of the kingdom that Christ gives in Matthew 13, which many scholars just call the parabolic discourse, which is a long teaching section of parables, Jesus tells the parable of these four soils. There's a sower who sows seed in four different soils, and we see a different outcome with regard to each of those soils as the seed is sown there, telling us something about the condition of the soil. The seed is the same. It's the gospel. The sower is the same. It's, in this case, the Lord, or maybe we might say even a preacher preaching on behalf of the Lord. So you have the sower being the same, the seed being the same, but what's different is the soil, the hearts of the people upon whom the seed is landing, the condition of their hearts. And so he is asked by his disciples to explain this parable, and as he explains it, look what he says about two of the soils in Matthew 13, 20. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, 
immediately he falls away. This is the person who likes the promises of the gospel, the benefits of the gospel, but he likes his own life more in the here and now. So when persecution and trouble comes, he falls away. Eternal life, that sounds great. But if that's going to cause me to suffer now, I'll just move along. Then look at the next soil, verse 22. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. He's not just in love with his life, but he's in love with wealth, prosperity, maybe the honor of his own name. Whatever it is, he loves that thing more than Christ. He can't see past it. So it's unfruitful. I think one of the reasons we struggle with self-denial is that we're in love with this present world to sum up those two kinds of soil. Another reason we struggle with self-denial is I think we think of it as some kind of asceticism. We think of self-denial as some kind of asceticism. In other words, there's some sort of severity to the body or denial of any earthly pleasure if we're going to have true Christian godliness. This is the kind of thing that Paul addresses in Colossians 2, if you just listen to what he says. In Colossians 2, he says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. Asceticism, the denial of any bodily pleasure. Some people, I think, when they hear the word self-denial, they hear us talking about asceticism. You can't enjoy anything in life. That's what they hear when you hear us talking about self-denial. So they struggle with self-denial because they're so in love with this present world that they can't see past it, or they struggle with self-denial because when they hear self-denial, they think that means the renouncing of any pleasure in this life. Yet we hear Jesus' call for self-denial. And when we hear him call for self-denial in really an unqualified way, we think, that sounds awful. It's too high a bar. I just don't want to live a life of constant loss, and especially a life of constant loss of what I consider good in this world. We hear a text like Luke 14, 26, and if we pay attention to what that text says, we struggle with the notion of wanting to be a disciple at all. He's going to give some flesh self-denial. You ready? If anyone comes to me, listen, if anyone, it's universal, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot, he is not able to be my disciple. I want you to hear this. I just am unable, and I'm sure you are as well, to discipline my heart to love God more than worldly goods and pleasures. I'm just in and of myself unable by that definition to be Jesus' disciple. I know I should love Jesus more than this earth and more than its blessings, but I just can't do it in and of myself. I just can't in and of myself forsake everything in this life. Anybody else feel that way? And you're right. You can't do it. You can't. That's why I think it's important to understand that self-denial is a fruit of the grace of faith in Christ. 
It's a fruit of the grace of faith. This gift of faith that God gives in Christ, self-denial is a fruit of that. The grace of faith in Christ does not meditate upon what's lost, actually. Rather, it meditates upon the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. In other words, self-denial is not an act of counting up our losses, but it's a fruit of the faith that sees Christ and all the exceedingly sublime blessings we have in him as better than all our earthly blessings. So today I want to look at, first, the fact of Moses' self-denying faith, because we're going to see Moses' faith bear the fruit of self-denial. We'll look at that in verse 24, and then I will look second at the explanation of Moses' self-denying faith. Why does he do this? And we'll look at that in verses 25 and the first part of verse 26. And then third, I want to look at the reward of Moses' self-denying faith. He was motivated by a reward. We'll see that in verse 26. So let's look first at the fact of the self-denying faith of Moses. Look at Hebrews 11, verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. That word refused can also be translated denied. Denied being called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. But note the central principle. This godly act of Moses that we're about to see in self-denial, this refusing to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, Moses did by faith. Pay attention to those two words because they resound through Hebrews 11. By faith. Every godly act that any of these Old Testament saints did, they did by faith. That is the central principle. The Christian life can be summed up with these two words, by faith. Ever since Adam disobeyed God in the garden, our only hope of salvation with God is the grace of God. God alone can save. And he promised to do so in what we call the mother promise, the promise that gives birth to all other promises, the promise that came just after the fall when God comes to curse the serpent and to curse the man and the woman. The promise we hear in Genesis 3.15, as God speaks to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God is going to send the seed of the woman, the Messiah, to save. God does all the promising and working, and we do all the receiving. God is active, and we are passive. He saves, and we are saved. Thus, salvation is and always has been by faith. Faith is just an instrument that receives God's grace. By faith in the coming seed of the woman. By faith in the Savior whom God would send for us. The Savior who would conquer Satan's sin and death the Savior who would perfectly obey God for us, the Savior who would pay the penalty of death due to us for our sin, the Savior who would raise from the dead, breaking the curse of death and giving life to all who trust in him. This is the Christian religion. It is a religion by faith in Christ. This is true in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And to quote Ian Hamilton, maybe we should just tear that little page between those two testaments right out of the Bible because it's just the word of God. God is the one who transforms us by the Holy Spirit. 
Thus, every morally commendable act that we participate in is an act done by faith. That's just the sum of the Christian life. It's what it is. It's a life lived by faith. Paul says this, doesn't he? Now, there's an object to that faith, Christ. Paul says this, I've been crucified with Christ. Galatians 2.20, yet I live. Not I, but Christ who lives within me. And the life I live, I live by faith in the one who loved me and gave himself for me. By faith, Moses did something. What did Moses do by faith? Look again at verse 24. By faith, Moses, here's a qualifier, when he was grown up. You're getting the time at which this happened. This was not when Moses was a child. This was when Moses was a man. If we follow Stephen in Acts 7, which because Stephen is preaching a spirit-inspired sermon that is recorded in Scripture, we should follow Stephen in Acts 7. We're talking about when Moses is around 40 years old. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. If you remember the Exodus story, God's people, Israel, had come to Egypt during the lifetime of Joseph. They had come there because of a famine that was in the land, and Joseph had raised in power in Egypt in such a way that Joseph brought his people there and really, at the permission of Pharaoh, was given the privilege of caring for the people of Israel in Egypt. He was caring for them. They were being well taken care of. They were given the land of Goshen. They multiply and spread quite successfully. And when we come to Exodus chapter 1, the Jews are growing in so much, if you will, reproduction. They're growing so much. There's so many of them now that the Pharaoh feels threatened by them. Now, this is a Pharaoh several generations later. Feels threatened by them and chooses to enslave them and treat them quite harshly. So now the people of Israel who'd come to Egypt to avoid a famine under Joseph are now in Egypt enslaved. And the Pharaoh was having all the young Jewish boys put to death. And the Lord spared Moses through the faith of his parents who hid him, protected him, and eventually sent him down a river in an ark. And Russell talked about that plenty last week, so I'll keep moving. The Lord in his kind providence directed that ark to the daughter of Pharaoh. And the daughter of Pharaoh drew the child out of the river and adopted him as her own. And that's why he's called Moses, because he was drawn out of the water. So she named him Moses. When Moses became an adult, he denied himself by refusing to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. By faith, Moses practiced self-denial, refusing to be called the prince of Egypt. But what exactly does this mean? To understand this act of refusing to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, let's look at our second point. I said the first point is the fact that he did deny himself. The second point is the fact that Moses' self-denying faith is given an explanation. There's an explanation for his self-denying faith. What is it? Look at verse 24 again. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. That word refused or denied himself is your primary verb. It's your main verb governing what's coming after it. Now notice you're going to get two explanatory phrases. The technical grammar there is that these are two participles that are coming or participial phrases that are coming. The first participle that explains the verb refused is the word at the beginning of verse 25, choosing. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Here's the first explanation of what that means. 
choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. What does that mean? That means first he chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. The second thing it means, the second participial phrase or the second word that is now helping us understand refused actually comes in verse 26. What I don't like in the English Standard Version is we put a period there and then capitalize he. It should just be a comma and says considering. Considering. So the next phrase is he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. So he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. What does that mean? It means he chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And it means he considered the reproach of Christ greater than all the wealth of Egypt. Catch this. His refusal to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter is a decision to prefer suffering with Christ and his people above all the wealth and glory of this world. Moses looked. We're told he considered. He like gave it some considered long-term thought. Moses looked at the life, wealth, and honor offered to him as a prince of Egypt, the most powerful, wealthy kingdom in the world at the time. And then Moses looked, considered the suffering of God's people and the promised suffering of the Christ, and he chose to join them. Moses knew the promises made in Genesis 3.15 of the coming seed of the woman. Moses knew that Israel was God's people and that the Christ was coming to suffer for them. He knew that. He knew the Lord called him to deliver them from bondage as a kind of type of the coming deliverer. Look at Acts chapter 7. Keep your hand in Hebrews 11, and we'll look at Stephen's sermon. Acts chapter 7 and verse 23. When he was 40 years old, this is speaking about Moses. He had just told us that Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, etc. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed, here's what's in Moses' heart and mind, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. He knew something about himself being the deliverer of God's people. This story is pushing us back to Exodus 2 and Moses' consideration and choice of God's calling in his life. He knew in some way that he was the deliverer of Israel. He knew he was the answer to the promise made to Abraham in Genesis 15 that after 430 years in slavery in Egypt, they would be delivered. And he knew that he was a type of the Christ to come. And he looked upon God's people and their affliction. And he contemplated the sufferings of the Christ to come. And he chose to follow that path rather than enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. Maybe you read the text and wonder, why is it sinful for Moses to be powerful and wealthy as an adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter? Was there any sin in Pharaoh's daughter adopting him? No. Was there any sin in the fact that as an adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter, he had become wealthy and powerful? No. So why are we told in Hebrews eleven twenty-five that he chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. It's, that's actually what the refusal to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, if he had 
chosen to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, he would have been choosing to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Why is it called enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin to, if you will, be adopted into royalty and wealth? Think about it. Joseph, whom we just read about, if we're following the Bible's canonical order here, we just read about at the end of Genesis, Joseph was powerful, wealthy, and honored as something akin to a king in Egypt. And Joseph's commended for that. So being wealthy and politically powerful, even being publicly renowned, is not necessarily sin. So why is it sin for Moses to remain in his place in Egypt? Why is that sin? Let me provide you two reasons. First, Moses would have gained his wealth and power through the enslavement and wicked mistreatment of the people of God. That was not the case in Egypt during the life of Joseph. Second, Joseph was made powerful in Egypt by God to deliver his people from famine by bringing them to Egypt. Moses was called to deliver the people from slavery to Egypt by leading them out of Egypt. In other words, God made Joseph wealthy and powerful to deliver his people from famine. And God called Moses to forsake wealth and power to deliver his people from slavery. So if Moses had held on to his life of fleeting pleasure, he would have preferred earthly good over honoring the Lord and his church. If he had chosen to remain in Egypt, he would have rejected the promises God made to Abraham and sided with the seed of the serpent rather than the seed of the woman. Moses chose rather to suffer with God's people. Moses chose to suffer the worst lot. Have you thought about that? He has before him two choices. Enjoy the best possible lot one can have in life or suffer the worst lot one can have in life. He looked at both choices, he considered them, and he chose to suffer the worst lot. He chose slavery and affliction with the people of God over the best lot, which is pleasure and wealth in Egypt. He considered both, and he made his choice. His act of refusing to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter was not ingratitude for her kindness in adopting him as a son of Pharaoh, but rather it was preferment. He preferred God's kindness in adopting him as a son of God. Moses looked at all the blessings of life, wealth, and honor offered him in Egypt all of them, and chose rather slavery, poverty, and dishonor with God's people. Why? What drove that choice? What gives a man the ability to deny himself in this way? The answer is faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. To understand that better, let's turn to our third point, the reward of Moses' self-denying faith. The reward of his self-denying faith. Look at verse 26, Hebrews eleven twenty-six. 26. He considered the reproach of Christ, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He was looking to the Christ and to his reward in him. Think about that for a minute. Moses was looking forward to the Christ and his eternal reward in Christ. That's what enabled him to practice self-denial. That's what enabled him to practice this kind of self-denial. Faith Hebrews 11.1 1, is the substance of things hoped for. You have that substance, that thing you hope for, all those blessings in Christ. You have him by faith. He is yours. You have the stuff of it by faith. You have it. 
You don't experience it all now, but by faith you have it. You don't yet have it by sight, but you currently, presently, really have it by faith. It's the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. You cannot yet see Christ in all his glory, but you have evidence of him by faith. And Moses' faith showed him something far greater than the glory of life in this world. He did not merely look upon his outward pleasures and deny them as some kind of naked act of the will. Look at the outward pleasures. I'll turn them down like some kind of aesthetic. Rather, he mortified his desires for them because he saw by faith, or killed, mortified is kind of a bold word, put to death his desires for them by faith. And what was his faith in? That Christ and his benefits are infinitely better. Infinitely better. Christ's, hear this, for Moses, Christ's loveliness overcame the glimmer of all the treasures of Egypt. I don't want you to get the wrong idea. You cannot gin up by your own strength a self-denial for all that's good and desirable in this world. You can't. You must, by faith, see something far greater in value. I can yell at you to deny yourself all day long. I can give you a list of 10 ways in which you're not denying yourself enough. I can turn to the passage and then say, do you really deny yourself? Then you're like, unsalty salt, you're worthless. You're like a pile of manure. You'd actually ruin manure. That's what it says in Luke 14. And just completely rip out of the context the fact that when Christ calls the disciples, when he calls the disciples that kind of self-denial, he's standing right in front of them. You can have all that or you can have me. And they see something in him far greater than all that. And we're called to the same. Moses chose to look to and suffer with the seed of the woman rather than to be exalted among the seed of the serpent. You will only do so when you see that Christ is greater than all. Moses preferred the eternal promises made to Abraham in the coming of his offspring rather than the earthly promises that come with Egyptian royalty. With that in mind, look at Matthew 16. Moses chose to suffer with Christ and his people rather than enjoy the pleasures of this world and her people. Look at Matthew 16 and see Jesus' call to us to do the same. Just after Jesus is talking about his suffering and death and Peter's done the dumb thing of rebuking the Lord, he says, no, Lord. That's an oxymoron. You don't say, no, Lord. You understand those two words don't go together well? <laughs> and the Lord rebukes him. But look at verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You want life? You find it by denying this life and looking to Christ. It's not just that you deny yourself in this life. It's that you're looking to an even greater life, life in Christ. Look at what he says next in verse 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? It's not just that you deny yourself wealth. It's that you see that there is infinitely greater wealth in eternal life. Or look at verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he's done. Are you looking for honor? How about being exalted by Christ 
coming in the glory of his Father with all the angels. You can turn away all the honor this world has to offer in exchange for something greater like that. This is what drives us as a church to deny ourselves, to deny ourselves the wealth and prosperity of the unbelieving world in this life. Like in Psalm 73, we're often having the experience of being envious of the arrogant. Remember that? I became envious of the arrogant. My foot had almost slipped when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I wanted that. But what does it also go on to say in that psalm? He prayed by faith, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is what drives us as a church to stand with Christ and his people even when we're being ridiculed and dishonored by the world. Many in the so-called church are siding with the world against the church. You're hearing it more and more. It happened 100 years ago in the modernist fundamentalist split. It's coming again. You hear it as people in the so-called church side against the church with the world. Here's what they say. We aren't like those Christians who are chauvinistic, anti-science, homophobic, racists, obsessed with archaic biblical teachings. We just love people. We aren't like them. We're like you. John Owen said this, Our Lord Jesus Christ warns us that some will entertain the gospel, but when persecution arises for the word, immediately they fall away. They would have him, but not with his cross. And his gospel, but not with its burden. They would be accounted of the people of God, but they will have nothing to do with their afflictions. But those who will not have their afflictions shall never have their privileges. So what preserves us from spiritual apostasy? The grace of faith. The spiritual grace to see Christ and to look toward rewards in him. Listen to Luke 6, 22, what Jesus says. Blessed are you when people hate you. You guys ever think that? We're like the opposite. Luke 6, 26, he says, woe to you when all men speak well of you. I think we see it completely opposite. Blessed am I when all men speak well of me. Jesus says, actually, you're cursed. Woe is a word of cursing. You are cursed if all men speak well of you. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Listen, it's not because people revile your name and tear you apart in public that you're rejoicing. You're not like, oh, it's amazing to have people just wreck me publicly. I love that. Nobody likes that. I don't have hardly any feelings, and I still don't like that. <laughs> Nobody enjoys it. But what does it say? Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. You're rejoicing because you're being treated like Christ is treated on his behalf, and you're getting the reward for that. We're looking to the reward with Christ, not to our reputation here. This also is what drives us as a church to stand with Christ and his people, even when our lives, our physical well-being, etc., is on the line. Is this not what Paul says about his own life of physical suffering and eventual martyrdom for the gospel? Now what he says, listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 4.16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, that's his physical body, our inner self is being renewed day by day. 
for this light momentary affliction. If you read about Paul's afflictions, you probably would not call them light nor momentary. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. It's an interesting language. You're looking to the things that are unseen. How are you looking to the things that are unseen? For the things that are seen are transient. They're changeable. But the things that are unseen are eternal. This is the faith that practices self-denial. It is the faith that sees the whole of what's offered in the here and now utterly eclipsed by the beauty of Christ and all that is ours in him. May God grant us all such faith. Let me pray. Father, we ask that we as your people would by faith see Christ and all our benefits in him. May that sight of him and his glory by faith eclipse everything we can see with our eyes so that we might be ready to deny ourselves for the sake of Christ and his people in every moment in our lives. Pray that you would do this work in us by your spirit, that you would conform us more and more to the image of your son. We know this comes by the Lord who is the spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.